I'd like to invite you all this morning to turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to continue our study through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. I'll give you a minute to get there. We'll read our text and then we'll pray together. Colossians chapter 3. And our text for this morning is verses 15 through 17. Colossians 3, verse 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord, you are our God. We are your servants. We are your grateful children, and our need in this hour is that you would speak to us. We need to hear your word. We need to receive your word. We need to be shaped by it. There are those among us today who need to perhaps be challenged, others who need to be comforted. We all need to be sharpened, instructed, and assured by your truth. So we pray, Lord, that as your word is preached, that you would strengthen our faith, that by your Holy Spirit you would increase our desire to obey, and that you would empower us by your grace to do all that you have commanded. So, Lord, let your word have its intended effect on us this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we read through this text, I don't know if you saw it, but there is a fairly clear structure. You know, sometimes if you are responsible, as I am and several others here are, if you're responsible to study the scripture and to teach the scripture, sometimes finding an outline is hard, but there's other times where an outline seems to literally jump out of the text, and this is one of those times. In this text, we have three references to Christ. Verse 15, the peace of Christ. Verse 16, the word of Christ. And verse 17, the name of Christ, or specifically, as Paul says, the name of the Lord Jesus. And paired with each of these three references to Christ is a call to be thankful. We see it in verse 15, be thankful. Verse 16, we sing with thankfulness in our hearts. And verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father. So three points, three commands. But here's the question. What is the thread that ties all three of these points together. What, what's, what do they all have in common? Well, if we'll back up for just a minute, and for those of you who've been with us, you'll remember, in verses 12 through 14, we've seen that as those who have been made new through faith in Christ, we put on the new self as we've trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross. As those who've been made new, united with Jesus, we are to put on the virtues that reflect the grace that we have received, things like love and patience and forgiveness. We are to live in accordance with who we are in Christ. But as we continue in verses 15 through 17, Paul shows us it's not just new virtues that we are called to. It's also a new set of values, what it is that matters most to us, what it is that is central in our lives as followers of Jesus. This, too, is part of our being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, as we see in verse 10. This is part of becoming who God intends for us to be. So here's what is the common thread, what ties all these commands together. It's the centrality of Christ. Since Christ is supreme over all, he must be central in our lives. He must be central. 
Growth in grace, if you and I are growing as Christians, will be evidenced by an increasing commitment to the supremacy of Christ. Christ over all. So what does that look like? What will it look like if you and if I are increasingly committed to the supremacy of Christ, if he is increasingly more and more central in our lives? Paul shows us that there are three evidences here of the supremacy of Christ in the heart of the Christian. We come to value his work. We come to value his word, and we come to value his glory above all else. So let's look at these one by one. The first evidence of the supremacy of Christ in the heart of the Christian we see in verse 15, and that is gratefully resting in the work of Christ. That's an evidence that Jesus has become supreme in your heart, that you are gratefully resting in the work of Christ. Let the peace of Christ, Paul says, rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Paul says the peace of Christ is to rule or to reign in us. What is the peace of Christ? I think there's three aspects here we can consider. What does Paul mean when he says the peace of Christ? Because this can feel somewhat generic if if we're not thinking carefully and, and reflecting on what the scriptures teach us. Well, first and most foundational, I believe Paul is referring to the objective peace with God that we have through Christ alone. That objective peace where we have been reconciled with a holy God. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Since we have been justified by faith, that is declared to be righteous through trusting in Jesus. He says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says this is an objective reality. It exists. It's there. We have it through faith in Christ because we've been justified. You see, as sinful people, you and me, all of us, Paul says, have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We were formerly enemies of God, meaning we did not have peace with God. We were at enmity with him. We were rebels who had set ourselves against God by our willful disobedience. And we were therefore deserving recipients of his judgment. There's no peace there. There's a conflict, and a conflict in which God's justice will always win out. There was a ruptured relationship between us and the thrice holy God. But Romans 5 tells us that we have objective, literal, relational, judicial peace with God through Christ. And that's good news. That's a peace that you and I could not secure or, or achieve or obtain on our own. We couldn't negotiate this peace. It had to be purchased with the blood of Christ. In his death on the cross, he removed our sin, paid our debt, purchased this peace with his blood. As we saw back in chapter 1 of Colossians 1, Paul says, You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. So here's the good news. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And Paul has told us already in Colossians 1 that this peace, this peace that is supposed to rule and reign in us, us, it need not be won. It need not be achieved. It need not be earned. It only needs to be received through faith in Jesus Christ. And unlike worldly peace, which comes and goes, this peace is permanent. This is once and for all peace with God. 
It depends not on our present circumstances, no matter the roller coaster of life, but this peace depends on Christ's past and perfect accomplishment. This is why we're not told to make peace or achieve peace or even to be at peace. We're told to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. He has secured it through the cross. So when Paul refers to the peace of Christ, he has first in his mind that objective peace with God that we have through Christ. But there's a second aspect to the peace of Christ. I believe that if we have this objective peace with God that leads to an experience of feeling at peace, a subjective sense of peace, a peace that can come and go. The peace of Christ, the peace that we have with God doesn't come and go. It is concrete, it is fixed, it is eternal. But our sense of peace, that sense of calmness and tranquility, being at rest, that comes and goes, doesn't it? And Paul is telling us that this feeling of peace is ours and it grows out of that objective peace we have with God. So objective peace with God is the basis for feeling a sense of peace. Now, some of you today, if you are not at peace with God, then you should not feel at peace. That would not be a good thing. That would not be healthy at all. That's like taking a nap in the middle of the freeway. Can you imagine seeing somebody maybe roll out a sleeping bag and a pillow right in the middle of K-10? They might feel at peace. They might feel that they could even fall asleep, but only crazy people would relax with a semi-truck barreling towards them, okay? So feeling at peace needs to be in accordance with actually having peace. So if you are at peace with God, if Christ has secured peace for you through his blood, then your biggest need has been met. And that means that your greatest problem has been solved, and it means that the most ultimate blessing has already been granted to you which means we should then feel a sense of peace. Jesus said this in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, just like the disciples in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is in the boat with us. And like Paul says in Romans 8, if God be for us, who can be against us? Like Paul says in Philippians, for us to live is Christ and to die, the worst thing that many people can think of possibly happening, to us that is gain. It is gain because of Christ. Paul tells us we are more than conquerors. We are eternally loved. We are destined for resurrection. We belong to the family of God. And if all of this is ours through Christ, then we have everything that we need to experience a real sense and a feeling of peace, of calmness, contentment. So we have objective peace with God through Christ, which allows us to experience this subjective feeling, this sense of peace. But I think that Paul also has a third aspect in mind. And that's relational peace. Look back at our text. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And notice what he says next. To which indeed you were called in one body. We were called to this peace in one body. Paul says, our experience of God's sovereign grace calling us into himself unites us together. We're part of a body. It's not just that I can have peace with God. It's that we have peace with God. 
In Ephesians 4.2, we are instructed that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, we ought to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So as those who have peace with God and those who enjoy this sense of being at peace, we ought to extend this peace to one another. The church ought to be a place where this peace is seen and demonstrated relationally. And this doesn't mean that conflict will never happen. Hang around long enough, you'll experience it. We will have problems. We will rub each other the wrong way. There will be sin. There will be offenses. But what this means is that we have the tools to work through those issues. We have an opportunity to seek to uphold the peace that is ours through Christ, to maintain the unity of the body. We are called into this together. So Paul says, let the peace of Christ, this objective reality, this subjective experience, this relational dynamic, let that peace rule in your hearts. The heart is the inner person. When Paul says, let it rule in your hearts, the heart is the place where you feel fears, the place where you experience frustrations, discontentment, anxiety. It's where stresses and all these other emotions fight for the wheel. They all want to drive the bus. Let me ask you, what is ruling you this morning? What's guiding your decisions and your reactions, your responses, your words? The command is to let the peace of Christ rule. This word for letting it rule, letting it reign, has the idea of an umpire who, who issues rulings, who declares what is in and what is out of bounds, what will be permitted and what will be rejected. Paul says the peace of Christ is to have the final say in your heart. You're going to experience all sorts of crazy things in your life, but the peace of Christ has the final say. And this is a command, meaning that if we allow, allow something else to rule us, if we allow our fears, our frustrations, our stresses to rule us, we are in sinful disobedience. We're commanded to let the peace of Christ rule in us. And some of you say, yes, I want to feel that peace. I'm not feeling it today or this week or this month. It's an elusive experience for me. Maybe you're someone who's always stressed, always unsettled, always anxious, what is it that keeps the peace of Christ from ruling in our hearts? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. I have a couple suggestions, not exhaustive. I think sin can keep us from experiencing the peace of Christ. When we walk in disobedience, we're not going to experience the peace of Christ. You know what we will experience if we belong to God? His loving, gracious discipline. And you want to feel that kind of pain. You want to feel that kind of unsettledness. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, that's a sign that God loves you and he's not giving up on you and letting you just go your own way. The Holy Spirit brings conviction. Guilt can be a gracious gift to alert us to the fact that there's something wrong, that sin needs to be confessed. Forgiveness can be then received and then the experience of peace can be truly felt and enjoyed. I think another thing that might keep you from experiencing peace is unbelief. Unbelief. Sometimes we grant more authority to our emotions than to the written word of God. Yes, I know the Bible says this about God's love, and I know the Bible says this about the peace I have through Christ. I know the Bible says that he'll never leave me or forsake me, and that he works everything out for good, but I'm not sure if he's really going to. When there's doubt and there's unbelief, that robs us of enjoying the peace 
that is ours through Christ. Sometimes we look for assurance in the wrong places rather than looking to Christ. That's unbelief. Sometimes we see our circumstances as more powerful than the cross and the empty tomb. This is unbelief that will keep us from enjoying the peace that is ours. I think also spiritual dryness and apathy can keep us from experiencing the peace of Christ. When we neglect to lay hold of the satisfaction that is found in Christ alone, when we look for it in other places, that's going to leave us restless and thirsty, not at peace. As we alluded to earlier, some of you aren't experiencing the peace of Christ because you don't have peace with God. You don't know him. You don't feel peace because you don't have real peace. You feel like something is missing because something is missing. And it's Jesus. You don't know him yet. That can change today. Christ calls to you and says, allow me to cleanse you of your sins. Trust in me and receive the gift of salvation that only I can give you. Then you have a real foundation for peace. So turn to him today and place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus to reconcile you to God, to make you new, to secure eternal life for you. And then peace can be had and enjoyed. This subjective feeling of peace comes when the objective peace of Christ is allowed to be the primary reality in our hearts. When Jesus is bigger to you than everything else in the world, then you have peace. So you can choose to, re- you can choose to reject Christ's peace. You can choose to ignore it. You can forget it. You can neglect it. But only when we let the peace of Christ rule in us, when we let it have the final say and be the biggest thing on our radar, then we will enjoy that sense of calmness and stability and hope that Christ provides. And if we do anything less, if anything else is bigger to us and more supreme to us than the work of Christ, If we treat anything else as more important, then we are dismissing Jesus and his work as of lesser importance. If Christ is supreme, his work must be central in our hearts. We gratefully rest in it. Note the attitude, Paul says, we're to let the peace of Christ rule with. Note that attitude, verse 15. And be thankful. Be thankful. Now, this is not just a random add-on. You might think, okay, did Paul just throw this on to, you know, get up to that minimum word count like some of you students do in your papers, right? Okay, it's got to be three pages. So if I quadruple space and use really big font, I'll hit, I'll hit my deadline. That's not what Paul's doing. He's not just adding in extra words. Gratitude is totally connected to what he's talking about. As those who objectively have peace with God through Christ and as those who get to enjoy that sense and that subjective feeling of peace, and as those who have peaceful relationships with each other, we have so much to be thankful for. The very things that produce peace in us also should produce gratitude. Paul says, he urges us, be thankful. No wonder that thankfulness is paired with peace. They're both rooted in the same reality. So if Christ is supreme, then we must gratefully rest in his Work. The peace of Christ is to be the governing reality in our hearts. That's the first evidence. The second evidence of the supremacy of Christ in the heart of the Christian is gratefully treasuring the word of Christ. So you see that? There's the peace of Christ. That has central place in our heart. And then secondly, we're to gratefully treasure the word of Christ. Verse 16. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the third reference to the word in Colossians. We see it in chapter 1, verse 5, the word of truth. We see it in chapter 1, verse 25, as the word of God that Paul had been commissioned to declare to the Gentiles. And now in chapter 3, we see the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? Well, if you look back in chapter 1, you know that Paul has used this primarily to refer to the gospel, the message of the good news of what Jesus has done, dying for sinners, reconciling Jews and Gentiles to the Father through his death. It's the specific message of Christ. But the word of Christ, I think, can also refer more broadly, really, to all of his teaching, his parables, his sermons, that that oral tradition that his disciples would have remembered and recounted for the people that they were leading and shepherding. That teaching would have spread throughout the church. But I think the word of Christ can have an even broader application, because you know what happens when you read the words of Jesus, those red letters in your New Testament? You'll actually find that Jesus quotes and affirms and upholds the entire Old Testament. And he says it all testifies about him. And that he has come not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. So we can include the Old Testament here. That the Old Testament is part of what is to dwell in us richly. Not just the gospel, not just the words of Jesus. And then we know, as we read the gospels, that Jesus appointed his apostolic messengers. People like Paul and Peter People like John and the other authors of the New Testament, they were given the authority to speak for Christ. They were the official representatives of Christ, and so their words penned for us in books like Colossians and First and Second and Third John and Peter's letters, those too come with Christ's full authority. So when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, I think he's talking about the whole Bible. It's all of it. We can't prioritize the red letters and then say the other ones don't have as much importance. No, Paul says we are to give central place to the word, to the word. If Christ is supreme, if we really believe that he is supreme, then his word must be central. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is first an inward reality. He says, let it dwell in you richly, to dwell in means to be at home, to take up residence. This is different. Maybe some of you guys, I know we have some family in here from out of town that are staying with other family. You you are not dwelling in the Miller's house necessarily because I think you're going home maybe Monday or Tuesday, right? Um, The Parkins and the Millers have dwelt in that home. They live there, permanent residence. That's what this word means, to take up permanent residence, to be at home. Paul says, let the word of Christ be at home in you as opposed to being a passing guest. The word of Christ should not just be an awkwardly out-of-place thing. It's to become so ingrained in us. We're to be so saturated by the scriptures that they come to shape every attitude, every action. You know, but too many of us are spiritual paupers, aren't we? Pauper is someone who's really poor. Define that word. We are Bible poor. We have a serious deficiency of the word of Christ. Very little of the word may be in us. Some Christians, sadly, can quote more movie lines or song lyrics than verses of the Bible. 
not going to ask any of you to raise your hands. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Some of, some of us, sadly, are more familiar with sports stats or scores, the latest NBA trades, maybe, than we are familiar with biblical doctrine. Some professing Christians are more interested in celebrities and the latest, you know, divorces or marriages or stars than they are with Christ himself. Some people are more concerned and burdened about political headlines than they are fixated on divine revelation. Friends, this ought not be so. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Perhaps some of you have a lot of scriptural knowledge. You can quote a lot of Bible verses. You do know a lot of biblical doctrine. But you know what? It's kind of all packed up in these nice, neat little boxes, and it's sort of like, you know, on that shelf in the garage of our hearts. And we bring it out when we need it, you know, once or twice a year. But it's not the centerpiece of our lives. It's not filling the house and overflowing into everything that we do. Let me ask, what about you? What place does the word of Christ have in your life, in your family, for your kids, in your marriage, in your thinking? Psalm 119.72 says this, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In Psalm 119.37, the psalmist says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. This should be the cry of our hearts. God, we love your word. We want to be filled with it. We want to be saturated by it so that every impulse of our being is dominated by your truth. I know some of you guys are trying to read through the Bible in a year. If you're like me, you have a little list that shows how much ground you need to cover to get through the scriptures for your reading plan. Friends, we don't read our Bibles just because it's a duty. We don't read our Bibles even just so that I can get a blessing for today. I'm going to flip it open, find a verse. Okay, got my blessing for today. We don't come to church and sit under the teaching of the word just because it's what we're supposed to do. No, we come to God's word to read it. We want to sit under the teaching of the word every chance we get. We want it to fill our minds because we need it. We need it. Matthew 4.4 4 says, as Jesus is speaking, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? You say it. Every word that comes from the mouth of God. We need to know God. We need to know his will. We need to receive his wisdom. There ought to be a holy hunger for the word of Christ so that it dwells in us richly, not as a dull duty, but as a joyful delight. You know, some people want to create a false dichotomy. They want to say, yeah, your church is one of those word-centered churches, but maybe we go to this church that's really a spirit-led church. Or you're one of those like Bible study Christians. I'm one of those spirit-led Christians. Some people want to create this false dichotomy. They may even accuse us, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, of believing in the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Have you guys heard that before, that little formulation? I really think this is a false dichotomy. There's not a difference between allowing the Word to be central and being filled with the Spirit. Flip back to Ephesians chapter 5 real quick, if you would. If you read Colossians and Ephesians, you'll notice there's a lot of parallels. Paul is teaching the same lessons to different people. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we find a very similar text. Look at verse 18. Paul says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. Does that sound familiar after what we've been reading in Colossians? It's nearly identical, except you have being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, somewhat being swapped out. I think this shows us in Paul's mind that these are really just two sides of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. To be filled with the Spirit and to let the Word of Christ dwell in you is the same thing. These are interchangeable concepts. If you are led by the Spirit, you know what will happen? If you are led by the Spirit, it means you will be able to understand and recall and apply the Word. That's the sign of a Spirit-led Christian, is that they smell like the Bible. You can't do those things without His indwelling ministry. And you know what it looks like when someone is filled with the Scripture? It means that they're going to be very aware of what the Holy Spirit has already said. It means that they are going to be submissive and desire to obey what the Holy Spirit has already said. That they are sensitized to his leading because the Spirit leads through the word. Giving us very clear direction, revealing the will of God, and granting us wisdom to make decisions that are in keeping with the principles revealed here. So to be filled with the Spirit or to be to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, we don't have to pick between the two. These are one and the same. They're one and the same. So let's ditch that false dichotomy. Let's treasure the word of Christ as those who are seeking to be filled and led by the Holy Spirit. So that's this inward dimension of letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you. But there's also a relational dimension to this. Look at what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And now it gets out of what's going on inside our heart and gets into our relationships and our words. He says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You see, teaching the word is a natural overflow of people who are filled by it. Teaching the word means that the word of God supplies the essential content. You know, the, the, the substance for the teaching that should happen here is not the world's latest trends. We're not here to talk about pop psychology or self-help mantras. We're not here to you know, pick apart the latest film or even to discuss classic literature and the things we see there. We're here to talk about the word of Christ. It supplies the substance for the teaching that takes place in the church. Now, some people are going to say, yeah, J.D., all truth is God's truth. I'd say, amen. I agree. I believe you. It is. But man, rather than dive into the dumpster to look for a morsel of something good, why not draw our teaching from the pure, undiluted source of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The scripture is to be the source and substance of our teaching. Let the word of Christ, Paul says, dwell in you richly, teaching one another. We're to instruct one another from the word. But he says also we're to be admonishing one another. So if teaching the word means that the word supplies the content, admonishing means that the word supplies the necessary authority. To admonish someone means to warn them. To tell them, hey, you're out of bounds. You're out of line. The word of God brings authority to confront sin, as uncomfortable as that is. God gets to tell us when we're out of bounds. So as we admonish each other, we do it with the word. 
The authority comes not from anyone's position, not from someone's social status, not from the power of their personality. It doesn't even come from your age or your gender. Authority to admonish comes from the word. Thus saith the Lord is the stamp of authority and the driving power behind our admonitions. If we are letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us, we're going to be teaching and admonishing one another with the word. But notice that this teaching and admonishing is to be done, Paul says, with wisdom. We do it with all wisdom. What this means is that the word not only determines the content of our teaching and supplies the authority for our teaching, but the word is to determine even the tone and the timing and the target of our teaching and admonishing. And this wisdom, too, comes from the word. I love what 2 Timothy 3 says. Paul's talking to Timothy, and he says, From a young age, you've been acquainted, well acquainted with the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise, even able to make you wise unto salvation. In Psalm 19.7, it says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You want to be wise? Get into the word. The word is able to make us wise so that our ministries of teaching and admonishing will be effective. So there's this inner dimension of letting the word of Christ dwell in us. Then there's this relational dimension. But look what happens next. Paul isn't done saying how the word of Christ should should affect our lives. He says we are to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There's this vertical dimension. As the word of Christ dwells in us, it's going to spill out in grateful worship. He mentions a couple different types of of songs here. He mentions psalms. These are obviously pointing to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. This was the worship text for the nation of Israel. Our songs are to be drawn from and shaped by scripture. If you read the psalms, you'll find that, that these psalms are filled with honest emotional responses to deep theological truth. The psalms are a rich treasury of of celebrating and standing in awe at who God is and how great he is. But the psalmist is also honest enough to say, and here's where I'm wrestling and here's where I'm going through it. And so the psalmist is taking, here's what I'm experiencing or needing, and here's who God is and what God does and bringing these things together. Paul says we should be singing psalms. And he goes on to say also we're to be singing hymns. We tend to think of hymns in our day and age as being something of a musical style. We think, well, if it's old and has more formal language, then it's probably him. But the technical word Paul is using here is really emphasizing the content and the purpose of the song. You see, back in Paul's day, there were, there were ancient songs. People were writing songs in praise of heroes and kings and emperors and the gods. You know, they'd have wars or they would have like the Olympic games and whoever was the winner would literally get worshipped. And there'd be songs of praise that celebrated the accomplishments and the characters and the strengths of their heroes. Paul says we are to sing hymns to God, songs that are about him, songs that extol his virtues and celebrates his fame. This is to mark our worship. The songs we sing in the church are to be about God, not about us. They're to be about what God has done and accomplished through his son Jesus Christ, not about me. Our songs are to be vertical praise that celebrates the glorious character of God, his gracious works. And where do we discover these things? Where do we learn about who God is and all the things he's done? It's in the word. So as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, we're going to sing hymns of praise 
to our God. And then Paul adds in a third type of song. He says spiritual songs. Spiritual songs. There's an expectation that as people experience the ongoing work of the Spirit, that there's going to be more songs written. We have the Psalms. We have hymns that have been written throughout the ages. And we have new songs to sing. Every age of the church, as there have been movements of God, people saved, great things accomplished, the result has been an explosion of new songs. We see it in the New Testament. There's several places where it seems like Paul is quoting from, from New Testament hymns that had been written. If you go back to the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago, you know what happened? An explosion of new songs. Men like Martin Luther writing, a mighty fortress is our God, and many, many others. And you know who wrote those songs? It wasn't people in the music industry. It was the scholars and the theologians and the pastors who were immersed in the scripture who couldn't help but put pen to paper to give the church new words to sing in praise of God. We see a plethora of songs coming out of the Great Awakening in the United States and Great Britain in the 1700s. Simply put, hearts that are full to the brim of joy and awe at what they've learned of God in the scriptures are going to spill out in song. This is the natural response of hearts that are ruled by peace, minds that are full of the scriptures, people who are grateful people. It says we sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. So if Christ is supreme, then his word needs to occupy the central place in our hearts, saturating our thoughts, our prayers, our conversations, and even our songs. But there's a third and final evidence of the supremacy of Christ and the heart of the Christian in this text, and we find it in verse 17. He says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So the third evidence that Christ is supreme in our hearts is that we'll be gratefully living for the glory of Christ. Gratefully living for the glory of Christ. Paul is comprehensive here. Notice three times he says this. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. So he wants to make sure that idea gets across. Anytime your teachers repeat something, that means it's important, right? So three times he emphasizes, this is comprehensive. Whatever we do, it's to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean? Does that mean that whenever, you know, you score a touchdown, you give a quick shout-out to Jesus? You know, I think there's something more that Paul's getting after than simply tagging Jesus' name onto something that we would already be doing anyway. What does this mean, to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? It means, first of all, that every word we speak and every deed we do is done under his authority. Under his authority. He says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord means master. We are servants. He's the master. We are under his authority. We're seeking to obey him and fulfill his desires, his will. We do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're under his authority and lordship. But it also means that everything we do, we're tasked to do it as his representatives. To do it in the name of Jesus means that we're representing him. We're acting as his body in this world. People out there today cannot see Jesus but they can see you. So everything we do is to be in the name of Jesus. We represent him. We are his ambassadors, his servants. I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, we live not for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. 
We are his ambassadors, his representatives. And it means, third, that we, everything we do is to be for his fame. To do it in the name of Jesus, say, whatever we just did, we don't get the credit for it. We're not looking for recognition. It's for Jesus. It's for his fame. It's for his glory. We want to say, like John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Everything is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. So it's not just that our singing is to be for the purpose of worshiping God. All of life is to be lived under the authority of Christ, for the glory of Christ. The same heart of worship expressed in song in the church is to be expressed and demonstrated outside the church in all of life. If Christ is supreme, then all of our lives are to be lived for his glory under his authority as his faithful servants. And then look what comes next after that. And you're not surprised because you've seen it twice already. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a final exhortation to gratitude. Again, three times now he's repeated the importance of giving thanks. Why is that? Why is that? I think Paul knows and understands that an ungrateful Christian is really an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. If you're an ungrateful person, if you complain, if you're dissatisfied, discontent, if you're entitled, a complainer, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not a Christian, that you're not saved, although it could mean that. But it does mean you're a hypocrite. Three times Paul emphasizes the importance of gratitude. Why are we hypocrites if we're not grateful. Well, a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. And if you profess to be a Christian, you claim to follow Christ, you claim to have received his gift of forgiveness and eternal life, you say that you believe Jesus died for you to make you right with God, you say you believe that because of Jesus you're going to rise from the dead someday and enjoy in an unfading inheritance and the eternal glory of God forever, and then you're ungrateful because you didn't get the raise and your coworker did, because your house isn't as big or as nice or as new as your friend's house, because you can't afford to go on the vacation that the other people can. To be ungrateful in light of all that God has done for us through Christ is either unbelief or hypocrisy. An ungrateful heart dishonors God, it devalues Christ, it dismisses the indwelling Holy Spirit, it disobeys the clear teaching of the word, and it is therefore an offense to the triune God of grace whose love and mercy has been poured out so richly on us. Paul says, whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus and do it with a grateful heart, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let me ask you, let me ask you, where does all of this land on you today? What place does the work of Christ have in your heart? When you think about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, what he accomplished, how does that affect you? Does it overshadow the stresses, the uncertainties, and the frustrations and trials of life? Does the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Does it fill you with thankfulness? What about the word of Christ? Does the word of Christ have the central place in your life? Does it dwell in you, as Paul says, richly? Does it inform your speech as you teach and admonish with wisdom? Does it shape your worship? Do you sing 
with a heart that matches your mouth, singing with gratefulness, with, with thankfulness in your heart to God? What place does the authority and glory of Christ have in your life? Can you say that everything you do is done in his name, submitted to his authority, done for his glory, and done with a thankful heart? Friends, Christ is supreme. And he must be esteemed as such in our hearts, in our lives. His work, his word, and his glory must be central. And if you have been made new, then these are to be your new values above all else. So that those things, his work on the cross, his written word to us, and his glory, so that those things become central, so that they shape our lives and fill our hearts with gratitude for his grace. Father, as we look into your word this morning, it's humbling to read these commands, that we are to let the peace of Christ rule in us, that we are to let the word of Christ dwell richly in us, and that we are to do everything in your name. Lord, I pray that you would give us the desire and the ability to obey these clear commands. I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude at the awesome display of grace and love you've shown for us at the cross. I pray that all of our fears, our frustrations, our anxieties, and our stresses would shrink down to their proper size when we look to Jesus. I pray, God, that your word would have its place here in each of us as individuals, in our homes, our families, and in this church, in our worship, and in our teaching, in our admonishing. Lord, we pray that your word would be lifted up. And God, I pray that you would accomplish your plan for your glory through us. Help us to submit every aspect of our lives to your purposes for your glory, to do it in your name, not for us, not so that we get credit, recognition, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Lord, forgive us for so often living for our kingdom. We want to live for you. And God, for any among us in the room today who don't have peace because they don't know the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, who cannot yet understand your word because the Holy Spirit is not in them, who are not submitted yet to your authority. They're still living for themselves. If there are any among us who have not been saved and placed their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that today you would change their heart, that you would convict them of sin and draw them to yourself and awaken them to the truth and beauty and glory of the gospel so that they would see you as supreme and so that your work and your word and your glory might become central in their hearts. Lord, we pray again that you would help us, strengthen us to obey so that you might be glorified as we become more and more like Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.